August 14, 2016, lecture discussion number 250 on the Book of Romans. I caution that if you've missed the first 249 of these, this might be a little bit difficult. However, I will do my best to get you up to speed in about seven to ten minutes in any event. So, I cannot validate that 250 or the fact that it's August the 14th. That uh, has uh, my, the official uh, cliffside protocol is that all responsibility with respect to the accuracy of the date and the numbering is the responsibility of the vast Internet audience now. Nice to see you folks again. I did get a couple of letters this week. Most of them had to do with Supper Dave, who is now more famous than uh, anybody hoped he would be. But that's just how it is. It's great fun. I got a letter from Mark from Lafayette who told me, as you know, I have difficulty uh, with the words, by the way. And he wrote a very wickedly funny, I'm trying to break the habit of saying, by the way. And he wrote something wickedly uh, humorous in that regard. And Mark, we appreciate you. The thing that's interesting is, is that he knew the names of everyone in the Cliffside audience. I mean, he listed them. I have made, I've made references to you. I never identify you specifically, but he had them all right, from Crazy Becky to all the way to up. So it was very fun, and he's been listening for many, many years, and he just wanted to say hi. He saw this opportunity. As per usual, Sharon from Texas has been brilliant, and uh, we appreciate. And it's possibility her daughter might come and visit us today. And if she does, if we see a woman come in that we think might be Sharon from Texas's uh, daughter, we'll lock the doors, turn the lights off, and pretend we're not here. That's how we'll do it. We're small enough to do that today since it's so close to the end of the summer. Okay, well, every so often, being the highly trained religious professional that I am, I reread my last ten or so lectures. As you know, I handwrite them. Uh, there's about 6,500 words each. I'm getting better at it. I go faster now, though my hand hurts more. But I go back over them and read them again because I... I want to know if I'm still going in the precise direction, the intended direction, and make sure that that's the case. And I want to inventory all and any elements in, that I have raised in case that I, that some have been omitted or neglected. And this week was the so often of this particular section. You who come regularly, attend regularly, will not express shock that I leave things out as I go through these lectures. It's just how it is. There's so much material. I made my list, and there was 24 items that I have not given its, uh, their deserved attention just so far in the last 10 or so, which actually is not that bad, relatively speaking. But I'm going to make my usual subtle effort today to stick those items back in, in today's presentation, wherever I can, irrespective of their contextual application, which is a nice way of saying it won't fit anywhere. It'll just seem like I'm throwing stuff out. So be prepared for that today. Okay, where are we? We've been blasting away on the color blue. Uh, we have recognized that the color blue, hence the blue pen, right, has some great significance. It definitely does. There's no question about it. When... Uh, when this event occurs with the man gathering wood, the evil of that, uh, 
God not only executes that man, but He gives the nation of Israel the color blue so that they would understand what just happened. And they would remember and not repeat it. So we ended up at Exodus, I'm sorry, uh, Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. That's where the pillar of cloud comes, Christ on the throne, and there is this sapphire substrate beneath the throne that we see this blue substrate. We go on to Exodus 32, 19 by way of Exodus 25, 1 through 9. That is the stone tablets. We finally go to Exodus 24, or 34, 1 through 4, and we see the second tablets along with Deuteronomy 10, 1 through 5. So we have gone through the first or the broken tablets that, uh, uh, that Moses smashed, and then we went to the rehewn, if you will, tablets that uh, were the replacement or the second two tablets. And that's basically the question of the two stone tablets and the ark of, the t- of these tablets. The two stone tablets are to be placed. God ordered them placed inside of the ark of the covenant. That's where they are today. If we could find the ark of the covenant, we would find those stone tablets. The tablets and the ark are specifically sized for this, which causes us to investigate uh, this relationship between these two symbols. We have one inside the other. And that's how we got into the issue of the color and the material of the stone tablets last Sunday. In other words, the question was, were the tablets blue? The reason for that theory is that as Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the elders go up the mountain, they see what Ezekiel saw, which is the blue substrate underneath the throne of Christ. Christ is on that mountain. That is a Christophany. Every time you see a physical manifestation of God, it is Jesus Christ. Every time. Uh, Who asked me today? It was Dana. um, Who will now end up in a letter from Mark from Lafayette? Uh, So... Hopefully it will be complimentary. Dana said, it occurred to him, ultimately to boil down the discussion that Dana and I had was, Christ is infinity manifest. How do you take infinity, which is God, which is Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, which is the Father, the triune God, how do you, that is infinite, how do you bring it into into a manifestation that we can understand being the imbeciles that we are. So Christ is infinity presented to you. Consider that. And we have symbols of him. The rabbinical tradition is is that when these men went up to see Jesus Christ on his throne on the mountain, this blue substrate that Ezekiel saw when the pillar of cloud came to him is is a sapphire-like substance, and it is blue. And the, the traditions among the Judaic uh, Judaism commentaries, the ancient ones, they've declared that the tablets are blue. And we wanted to know, is that correct? Does that reconcile with Numbers 15, for example? Does that reconcile with the woman grabbing the blue tassels and her bleeding stop? Does that reconcile with the little girl being raised by the talit wrapped around her and the tassels involved in that as well? The, the rabbinical tradition, again, is that the uh, two stone tablets were made out of the same sapphire material that were beneath that throne that Christ was on when these men came in contact with him at his uh, 
of course, he, he initiates that. Now, keep in mind, Paul is a Pharisee. He's an expert in Judaism. He's educated in all of these ancient commentaries and all of this material. He warns Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.4, not to heed these writings. See also 2 Peter 1.16, Titus 1.14. Don't listen to these, Peter says. Sometimes it's interesting to read uh, ancient interpretations, especially from the Jews. But having said that, the Bible is defined, personified by its portrayals of Christ. People ask me all the time, how do you know the Bible is God's word? How do you know? Why isn't some other book God's word? How, can I, how is this one different from all the other writings that have ever existed? The difference is, is that on every single page of the Old Testament, every, not a single page omits it, every single page there is a portrait of Christ. That's how they determined what was Scripture and what wasn't. If the portrait of Christ is not there, then it is not Scripture. If it is there, then it is. The New Testament tells you what the portrait is. They interlace. They complement. Scripture is Scripture because it is Christ-full. Let me put that on for you so I have a speech impediment. If you ever wonder why I spit on the first three rows, Mark from Lafayette mentioned that he would he was sympathetic to those of you. And we would film the first three rows, but you couldn't understand them. You couldn't uh, de- delineate who they are because they're covered in visqueen, Mark. And so that's uh, it's because of my deformities, which is why I have medicine. Mark suggested that I could sell other items as well besides trying to get Coca-Cola Company to sponsor Cliffside. So far, it's been fruitless, hasn't it? And we have a nice tie, too. If I'd known that that the lovely Adair was coming, then I would have wore her tie that she made me. Okay, where am I? Christ full. The Bible is full. Full to the brim, overflowing with Christ. If you cannot find Him there, then you're not reading Scripture. And if you cannot find Him in the Bible, then you're not looking very well. You have eyes that cannot see. The writings that the ancient Jews have used as commentary on the Old Testament are Christless. There's the difference. One is Christ-less. The Old and the New Testaments testify of Jesus Christ. That's what they do. That is the central, fundamental, foundational focus. The writings, the commentaries do not do that. So what then is the probability... That, they, that a Christless manuscript will be accurate with regard to blue. It's a symbol of Christ. So what is the possibility, the likelihood that it will, it will get this correct? Therefore, we have to be wary of rushing to a conclusion that originates solely from the 
Judaism extra-biblical sources. Last week I asked the inevitable questions about the blue tablet position because it is a powerfully prevailing position and Christians like it because it's kind of cool. They think, ooh, the stone tablets were made out of the substrate underneath the throne. So that's really neat. And that's possible. I won't say it isn't possible, but I ask questions that would make me concerned if I were you or if I were me. I hope, I hope I last week illustrated its difficulties. First among these is the ability of Moses to destroy the blue tablets. He destroyed them. What's the implication of them, of that if Christ is a type or, I'm sorry, is symbolized by those tablets? That's problematic because the blue tassels are also involved in this. Christ fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi 4.2 when he brought his blue tassels into the healing of the bleeding woman. He stopped her bleeding. She would have bled to death. And then that subsequently, as I said, he wraps his blue tassel fringes around that daughter of the ruler of the synagogue and resurrects her. So we know something about blue. We know that blue has something to do with life and resurrection. Christ says, I am the life and I am the resurrection. Do you believe this? Yes or no? And those blue tassels are integrated into the resurrecting uh, ministry of Christ and the lifeblood ministry of Christ. And so Al asked, do the tablets have that same kind of symbolism? Jesus Christ is the only source of life blood and therefore the only one who will and is able to resurrect the dead to life as he so defines life. So blue is somehow a symbol of Christ's work and his will to bring life to the dead. His life. He's the only source of life. So if you have life, it's from him as he so defines life. By the way, do we have life What do we have, this condition? People look at me and say, well, you clearly don't. You have something. I made a comment on the softball field the other day. Somebody said, hey, coach, how you doing today? I said, well, I'm aging. My aging process is accelerating. I'm going to be 10 years older in about 15 minutes than I am now. That's how fast it seems to be going. Aubrey will drive my car home probably at the end of that. This lecture, it goes so quickly. I know what I have is not life. I have a condition. But life, as Christ defines it, doesn't look like this. Everyone says, Amen, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Right? Blue, he makes it clear. He stops the blood stops the bleeding. He's the lifeblood. He resurrects the dead. That's blue. Are the tablets blue? Now I realize and hopefully have stated this the argument fairly that Numbers 15 connects the blue tassels to the 613 laws in the Torah. It's how they, they are able to look at those tassels and say that is representative of the 613 laws. And in some way, Israel 
whenever they confront the evil of the man gathering wood. So I have the gatherer of wood. Remember this, I hope you do. The gatherer of wood. I have also the rebellious son. And I have the eater of blood. This, of course, is Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. This is Numbers 15. This is Leviticus 17. So I have those three guys tied into this. Whenever the the Jewish people look at that blue fringe and they don't have the color anymore, they've lost it. So all their fringes are white. But whenever they were to look at their blue fringe, they were to remember this man, this evil of the man gathering wood and what he was trying to do. God calls it harlotry. He also calls it harlotry with regard to the eater of blood. The, the, all of these were immediately executed. So, the solution to the, to the gatherer, the evil of the gatherer of wood is blue. Are the tablets blue? In other words, all of the laws, all of the Old Testament portrays Christ who has this blueness to him in the sense that he's connected to it through resurrection and blood. Now, Remember, the tablets are inside the ark. The tablets are inside the ark. Let me erase this part. Then I have to find everything else. Tablets inside ark. What else? is inside Christ. Notice the leap. I have said to you that the ark is a symbol of Christ. What else is inside something besides the ark? Let me rephrase that so it's more clear. Where else in the Bible is something inside something? See, we're going to have to consider all things. If the ark is Christ, and the ark is Christ, that is without dispute, and the tablets are inside the ark, then the tablets are inside Christ. What else is inside Christ? Well, I have the rod of Moses or the rod of Aaron, right? The rod of Moses or the rod of Aaron becomes a snake, and it, of course, eats other snakes. So you can easily make the connection that small snakes, small Snakes are inside of the rod of Aaron. So I might have a relationship between the tablets and, uh, and the ark and the rod and the small snakes. What else do I have? Where is the New Testament complement of these two? Well, I just find some place where Christ is about to put something inside of himself. That clearly is the cup. So I have Christ and the cup. So now, to solve whether or not the tablets are blue, I just have to put those three pieces together. How easy is that? should probably be able to do it in a couple of years. Maybe four or five. Not today. What is the relationship of the cup at Gethsemane to the two stone tablets? When you start reading the Gethsemane account, 
where Christ says, let this cup pass from me, you're now in a discussion on the tablets being inside of the ark. And I would suggest to you uh, also the small snakes. Right? Okay. Obviously, we have a thousand questions now flying at us when we start down this path. So this is a good time to ask, why does the omniscient God of creation erase this? Because we are about to embark on a little trail that will make no sense to you whatsoever, which is why I like these the most. Why does the omniscient God of creation, the creator of time, the one who sees all of time at the same time, so that's who I'm talking about, he knows all things, he sees all of time, at the same time, he's simultaneous, he's, he's the I am, he is always in the present, there's never a time when he is not in the present, which is why he calls himself that, as you all know, and he's looking at time, why does he use the word but? Here's a better word. Why does this person, omniscient God, say if? God says if. He says it a lot. He's omniscient. He's outside of time. What's he saying? This is the other Daniel question of the month. Remember the other Daniel. We have two Daniels, those of you on the internet. Hi, Mark and Lafayette. Have fun with this. We have two Daniels. I call them both the other Daniel. The reason I do that is because... I recognized quickly that the other Daniel knew that when I said other Daniel to the other Daniel, that it was the other Daniel that I was referring to. That, I thought, uh, was worthy of repeating every week because it makes four people laugh. But this is his question. Remember the last time the other Daniel brought us a question? It was Ananias and Sapphira. Uh Uh-oh, sapphire, blue, here we go again. I will go get that. I'll be back in a minute. Why does, uh, why does omniscient God say if? Probably the place in Scripture that everyone questions about this is uh, uh, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. This is where this all arises. Let me read that to you really fast. The Lord God commanded the man. This is a commandment from the Lord God. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. So what is he saying to the man? That's an important thing. Look at that word again. Every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but... There he goes. Omniscient God is going to say but. Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not... You shall not... Let's write that up there. You shall not. Remember, who's saying this? 
outside of time, omniscient God, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof, for in the day, I'll put four over here. Oh, I'll go ahead and do the whole thing. For in the day that you eat of it, thereof, you shall surely die. And the actual term is dying, you shall die. I have you shall, you shall not. Let me repeat it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely, freely eat, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof... Now, omniscient God is using the word day. Does he mean tomorrow? Does he mean the present day? What day is he talking about? He is the... I am. For in the day that you eat of it, dying you shall surely die. Uh, let me repeat the emphasis on commanded and freely and for in the day. Those three pieces have been the centers of arguments for thousands of years now. God gives Adam a direct order. He adds to the direct order. Order. Adam is given considerable something. What is he given considerable something? Freedom. Adam has freedom. Lots of freedom. No restriction on any tree. He can take it or leave it. Doesn't like that tree, doesn't have to eat from it. He's got his choice. He can eat from any tree whenever he wants. No restrictions on all those trees. How many trees he got? How good a gardener is God? How much life is out there? Adam could choose to eat or choose not to eat of any of the trees with a singular exception. One exception. Now, hopefully the most obvious of the obvious questions has come flying out and hit everybody in the forehead and left a mark. That being, why did, how did the omniscient God give Adam the freedom to reject a direct order, a commandment? Because Adam's got it. The how and why of that. You see, a plethora of scholars have identified the four in that day, dying you shall die, as evidence that God knew beforehand that Adam would disobey the order. God gave Adam the order knowing that Adam would reject God and die. So God gave him the order knowing all along that Adam would... Because he can't help it. He knows all things. He's outside of time. He can see this day and he can see that day at the exact same time. He's the creator of time. He can't help but know. They see that as God then... Uh, let me put it this way. They see God's omniscience is outside of timeness. Is that a word? We should make it a word. We should charge other people for using my new word. Buy a church motorhome, we could all participate. We'd have to have lots of slides. They're just cool. 
But the theologians that have this view, they see that omniscience, the omniscience of God is causation. Does that make sense? They think God's omniscience caused Adam to reject because his omniscience demands that Adam do what he knows and therefore the omniscience is causation. Never do they consider that knowing can be isolated from freedom. But that's another day. Just because I know does it mean I caused. I know my grandchild is going to flirt with the visitor. I didn't cause her to do it. She's just friendly, her mother said. Do you see any problems coming for these parents? Do you? My goodness. The grandchild is telling the grandmother uh, that she wants to go see her parents who are sitting in the back of the room. And the mother is, of course, the lovely Lori, says, well, you go. And the grandchild says, you come now. Exactly how her mother would handle this situation. <laughs> so the curse is worked. The grandchild will be worse than the mother. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. We're getting a new phone number. Those of you who need need to call me. <laughs> okay, back to this. Obviously, Genesis two sixteen through seventeen contains these elements of God's omniscience and our freedom simultaneously. This is why, to shorten it a little bit, these words show up in the Bible. We'll get you there in a second. Genesis 2.16 contains the element of free will and God's intention to give mankind extensive free will, including the ability to reject His Creator, but simultaneous to that, is God's omniscience. The two truths do not contravene. There is no violation, though many people assume there is. God put man's capacity to rebel against the God directive side by side in the same verse with his omniscience. That's not a coincidence. In fact, it's intended positioning. Now, to the other Daniel's interest in the wordings of Deuteronomy 20, 21, and 22, which is where we are, because he saw this in the rebellious son. Uh, let me just go through this really fast so that we can start the lecture. We already had one visitor leave, didn't we? That's pretty good. He didn't even last 30 seconds. I wanted to say hi. Obviously, he was in the wrong place, wasn't he? He knew it really quickly. We have one visitor left. I'll do my best. But there's brisket and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Be thinking ahead. You're the visitor. You know what that means. You're going first through the buffet line. So there you go, baby. <laughs> do I treat all visitors this way? Yes. Do they come back? Hardly. No. <laughs> well, I'm absconding with the church treasury. <laughs> Me and Lori are going to buy a Sandwich or something, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Ah. 
God puts man's capacity to rebel against his commandments side by side in the same verse with his omniscience. since It's exactly what he intended. And so let's now take a look, knowing that, let's go and take a look at Deuteronomy 20, 21, and 22. 21 is where the rebellious son is. That becomes very important. Here's what chapter 20 says. Uh, chapter 20 of Deuteronomy governs wealth, warfare, and the phrases are in this form primarily. I can't read it all for you. I'll just give you the phrases basically uh, actually truncated. When you go out to battle against your enemies, does the omniscient outside of time God need to know when? Who needs to know when? Obviously not him. He knows when already. When you go near a city to fight against it, when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, when you besiege a city for a long time. So I get this word, when shows up. Reconcile that with I am. As I continue, Deuteronomy 21, if anyone is found slain lying in the field. Does he know if anyone's going to be found slain lying in the field? So why does he say if? Why didn't he say when? It has something to do with your free will and his omniscience. Start wrestling with that. If anyone is found slain lying in the field in the land, then your elders and your judges shall go out. If you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free. That's a different subject. It's about a captive woman. But the same thing is there. If then. How many of you took geometry? Yeah, you would recognize if then. How many of you taught geometry? If a man has two wives, one loved and one loved less, then it shall be. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father, then his father and mother take him in front of the elders and he will ultimately be executed. When, if then, what are those words? What do they mean? Deuteronomy 22, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down and hide yourself. You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seeds. You shall not plow an ox and a donkey side by side. You shall not wear wool and linen. When, if then, you shall not. Why does he say you shall not? Why are all these these societal, seemingly mundane ordinances, laws in the Bible? Why are they there? You know why they're there, don't you? They are there because somehow they portray Jesus Christ, his redemptive work, his ministry, his person. And they have a New Testament complement that you can assign them to. The Bible is so interconnected, it cannot be separated. You cannot separate the New Testament from the Old Testament. That's going to be a dismaying thing to a lot of people who hear this this week. I should say this, I forgot last week. We had 526 people in Hong Kong listen to me last week, or last month. Uh, that's Whoever you guys are in Hong Kong, I, I need more pins. I'll let you know. 
Yeah, I, I, I have instructions on how to refill them, but I'm afraid it's like bullets. If I use the refilling, I'm out of bullets. So I want more refilling or more pens. These came from Tokyo. That's close enough to Hong Kong, isn't it? I took, I took geography once in the sixth grade. It was about maps. I did lots of maps. All of these societal laws, they are portraying Christ. Rebellious son is extraordinary in this situation. The warfare provisions, they also are incredible. We'll go over those both as the weeks come along. But as per always, hidden within them are these portraits of Christ. Always find Christ. Rule one. With that said, did God know? Duh. Never, never start a sentence uh, or a question with did God know? You've just identified yourself as an idiot. Okay? Unless it's sarcasm, then you can do it. Or if you're a professional pastor, okay. he can do it. Did God know that every and each of his given orders and laws would be broken? The answer is, duh, yes. Which is one word. Did God's omniscience cause them to be transgressed? Duh, no. Some of you will think duh, no means don't know, but it's duh, no. You have to emphasize the first syllable. Accent on the first syllable. Did God's omniscience... No, I said that already. Notice the symmetry with Genesis 2, 16 and 17, right? A man disobeys his father, chooses certain death. Deuteronomy 21.18 through 21. I hope you also see that that is Genesis 3. See what I did there? Why does the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God use the word if or but to rephrase it, to replace it? Why does he use the phrase if then? Why does he say when? Continuing, would omniscience preclude hypotheticals? Why does an omniscient God speak in hypotheticals if you have concluded he has? Is it possible for omniscience to propose hypotheticals? Does it make any sense for omniscience to propose hypotheticals? Is there such a thing as hypothetical to an omniscient mind? Does God propose possibilities that will never happen? Do you have God saying, well, this will never happen, but I'll go ahead and say it anyway? Is that Wrestle with that in your spare time. Again, I'll continue with them next week. Now, we'll start the lecture. If you find these questions that I just gave you intriguing, were you weird before you came to Cliffside, or did Cliffside make you weird? Back to blue. The great of Revelation 17.4 has no blue. Wow, I'm trying to decide if the tablets are blue, made out of sapphire. And now I know 17.4 of Revelation, the great whore, or the harlot, 
which takes me where? Back to this guy, back to the blood eater, the great whore, the great harlot has no blue. I would expect that. Let's read that really fast. Got to hustle now. Runsing out of time. Whose fault is it? Say it in unison. The other Daniel. That's right. Absolutely right. 17.3 So he carried me away in the wilderness in the spirit I'm sorry. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand the golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication and on her forehead a name was written Mystery Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And I saw her. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. We've started all of this because blue is attached all throughout Scripture with purple and scarlet. Those three colors are in the tabernacle of Moses. They're woven in everywhere in the tabernacle of Moses. The blue, of course, is in the ephod. It's in the cord that attaches the plate to the head of the turban. It's blue, purple, and scarlet are almost inseparable in the Old Testament. But here I have a place where there is no blue. There's just scarlet and purple. A scarlet woman on a scarlet beast with some purple. So now we're making some progress to try to solve the tablet question. Why were the tablets broken? Did you ever figure that out in the last week or so while you were thinking about it every day as you should in order to get an A in the class? Why were the tablets broken? Did God know that the tablets would be broken? If he knew the tablets were going to be broken, what? he has to know that the tablets are going to be broken. He's omniscient God. He's outside of time. He knows all things. So why did the omniscient God who knows all things, who's outside of time, give tablets to Moses that may or may not have been blue to break? Why? So why were they broken anyway? What else is broken in the Bible? Let's go find all the broken stuff. First thing everybody tells me, the afikomen of the Passover meal. I have three breads, right? One of them is broken and hidden. The portrayal of Christ seems to be there. Is Christ broken? Yes or no? Ooh, great question. Who is he? Omnipotent God. Can you break omnipotence? Does the Bible describe him as broken? Oh, we're going to have to deal with that, aren't we? Yay, won't this be fun? Did Moses... Break something that betrays Christ. If you have the tablets being blue, that they're going to betray, or betray, be, what's my word? Portray Christ. And he broke them. So did Moses break a symbol of Christ? Because if they're blue, that's what you're saying. How come, how many tablets are there? 
four. How come there's four tablets? You ever asked that? Why didn't, why, why didn't he put all, all of it on one tablet? Why does he need two? He ends up with four. Does he know he's going to have four? Don't ever ask that because you're in duh, yes. Does the law stop bleeding women? Does the law... I have a woman bleeding to death. Does she run and grab the law? I have a child who needs to be resurrected. Does, does Christ go and get the tablets and put them on top of her? No, he puts the color blue on top of her. He doesn't need to. He's doing it to try to teach us something. right? He's omniscient God. Does the law bring eternal life? Is the law blue? What does the law do? What does the law not do? Why did God give stone tablets? Why not a scroll? Seemed a lot easier to write on. Obviously, God spoke directly to Israel, and you might remember that, because Israel did what? And ran, terrified. And they told Moses, you go talk to him. We're going to hide over here. We don't even like the sound. The sound is destructive to us. It is generally agreed that God then speaks to and through Moses after that particular event. It's also generally agreed that God spoke his Ten Commandments directly to Israel. So Moses was not the intermediary at that particular time. Okay, the Hebrew, the Hebrew word law, Torah, what does it mean? It means to instruct. It means to teach. It means to guide. The purpose of the entirety of the law then is to teach something. So what does the law teach? You're supposed to learn something from the law. So what is it that you have learned from it? Teach what? What was Israel and therefore by extension us supposed to learn from this? Israel was chosen. It's the chosen nation. Chosen by God to receive the law and to learn something from it. And then they're supposed to take what they learn and go all over the world. They didn't seem to have learned it, and they certainly didn't go all throughout the world with it. God dispersed them anyway. And this is where the discussion becomes somewhat partisan. By that I mean controversial, disputed, denominationally, strife-filled. I can reduce it down to a couple of questions so that you can fight it out in the buffet line though it doesn't uh, become simplified when I do it. Does the law provide a means or a method or a path to salvation? Yes or no? Does the law kill? Yes or no? Is the law blue? Blue stops bleeding and resurrects life. Repeat them. Does the law provide a means or a method or a path to salvation? Does the law kill? Those are the two questions that cause the most angst, offend the most people. Trying to offend as many people as I can today. I think I've done it. Now let's throw in. Is the law a permanent system? Or was it terminated? Or abolished? Is the law a divisible unit? 
Can I take parts of the law and separate it out? Can parts be not only separated out, can those parts then be disregarded or discarded? Can I say, this is not applicable? Boom. Get rid of that. I don't need, all I need is a little red tiny New Testament. I don't even need an Old Testament. Can I do that? I eliminate all of this incredible prophecy of Christ when I do that. So obviously I can't. But that's what we do. Go to any church, you get a little red New Testament, don't you? Is God happy about that? Is the law separable or is it in fact an indivisible unit? Now let's back up a bit, revisit. Does the law kill or does the law save? Which one is it? Romans 3 makes the definitive case. It says, this after all is a Roman study, right? The law does not save anyone. Mankind cannot be saved. In fact, Romans 3 says, oh, repeats all of Romans. Mankind is helpless against the law, hopeless against the law. We are in a helpless, hopeless condition if the law is in front of us. Thus, we can, we can infer one purpose of the law. The law was given to Israel to prove that none could be saved by it. Not one. No, not one. None can be saved. No, not one. Romans 3. And therefore, if none can be saved by it, what did we just learn? We're either doomed or we've got, we got a plan here that will work. It, it forces you. It instructs you. It guides you. It points you to... Salvation only through Christ. Only by grace through Christ. There's only one salvation. That's what it does. That makes sense. An omniscient God would know, wouldn't he? Omniscience guarantees only one salvation. Again, not everyone agrees with me. I don't know why that is. Frankly, the fact that not everyone agrees that there's only one salvation through Christ and that the law proves that you will die if, you, if that's your only option, uh, that's a great failure of the church to figure that out. Okay. Two minutes. Got to go fast. If the law, the stone tablets, the four tablets, do not save, would God have made them out of blue material? The blue tassels of the blue talit were given prominence again to repeat this by Christ when he stopped the woman from bleeding to death, when he raised the daughter of the ruler. Two functions of blue, restoring the life blood, raising the dead to life. Are the tablets blue? Can't repeat it enough. If the penalty for disobedience to any of the law is death, and it is, Galatians 3.10, James 2.8, can the tablets be blue? You decide another interesting detail. There's much Jewish speculation that both the two broken tablets and the two intact replacement tablets are inside the Ark of the Covenant. Have anybody read that or heard that? They say they're all in there. The broken pieces and the other, it's all four tablets essentially. Which brings us to ask again, re-ask again. Why did God place the tablets inside of the ark? What's his choices? Uh-oh. He's omniscient God. How many choices does he have? 
What happens to choices when you're omniscient? Why does he even mention the word choices? Does he have choices? It's your choice to decide whether or not that's the case. Does he have free will? Ah. The ark protects Israel from the law. Is that why God put them in there? So the ark is therefore a radioactive containment device? Is that the point? Because the law kills. If the law kills, I've got to protect people from it. The ark shields then Israel from death as well as the world from death. A lot of people object to that. Many people object. They shout at me, actually. They say this, the law does not result in death unless somebody breaks the law. Whoa, well, I would say the law does not uh, result in death until or when or if or but. The law always results in death because... Somebody breaks the law. If you tell me the law does not result in death unless somebody breaks the law, I say exactly my point. Moses broke the law, didn't he? Literally. I should note, insert here, that it's common to find the opinion that Moses broke Israel's copy so that Israel would not get it. In other words, Israel was about to get their copy. So there's two copies. There wasn't really because one was still to be hewn. Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 10. But Israel's going to get their copy. Moses is going to give it to them. And he says, ah, I can't give it to them. Why can't he give it to them? They're busy worshiping a golden calf. So instead he smashes it. So that they don't have that agreement. They do not possess their copy. This is the view that sees Moses' act as a breaking of breaking the tablets as being a preemptive uh, event, offering, if you will, enabling Moses the opportunity to interfere with God's certain wrath. In other words, Moses goes, he's going to annihilate these people if I give them this copy, so I'm going to smash it, and then God won't annihilate them. You consider what's wrong with that view. There's something wrong with it. So where was I? Yeah, choice number two. The law is one law. That is the standard of God. It is kept inside Christ, the ark, as a testimony, because it's the ark of the testimony, right? Testifying of Christ being the only person who is able to not break the law. Is that right? Is it option one, the containment? Is it option two, choice two? Or is it all of the above? Christ is obviously the ark. So what is Israel to remember about the law when they are pursuing the man gathering wood on the brink of pagan demon goat worship or about to be dealing with the rebellious son? What are they supposed to remember? They look at the blue and they see what? What do they see when they look at the blue? They see blood Life, blood, and resurrection from death. What do they see? What do they remember about the law? Does the law kill? The blue tassels reminds them that the law does not save not one of them. No, not one. 
What did the Pharisees teach? How did they do? They had tassels all around them. But no blue in them. Only had white tassels. This is where you all rise in unison in some glorious whatever it is. And you're dismissed.